Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Friday, July 7th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today the U.S. to provide Ukraine with cluster bombs. So the Associated Press reported on Thursday that the Biden administration has decided to arm Ukraine with cluster bombs and will announce the munitions as part of a new $800 million aid package. The news comes after Human Rights Watch issued a report that said Ukraine has killed its own citizens using the munitions. So that was published uh, early on Thursday, and then we got these these reports that the U.S. has decided to send the cluster bombs, and U.S. officials told AP that they expect the arms package to be announced on Friday. And the White House used to be opposed to arming Ukraine with cluster munitions as they are indiscriminate weapons that can really harm civilians, but those concerns are gone now. The State Department was previously opposed to it. Secretary of State Antony Blinken withdrew his objection. And it looks like they're going to be headed that way. And this was reported by not just AP, but all sorts of media outlets. So I think we should expect to see this announcement on Friday. And as we've covered a lot, cluster bombs scatter small submunitions over large areas, making them especially hazardous to civilians who can find them, you know, if they're unexploded years after they were dropped. And the, the line from the U.S. from the Pentagon, the Pentagon was asked about this on Thursday. They said, that they don't have an announcement to make, but they defended the idea of sending the cluster bombs, saying that the, the ones that they have uh, have a low dud rate, which means, again, you know, the hazard is if they drop and they don't explode and then they're in the area and civilians come across them. So they're claiming, oh, don't worry, you know, most of these will explode. Um, but it's also indiscriminate, you know, if they're bombing a city and there's civilians there and, you know, it just sends bombs all over the place. Um, but because of their indiscriminate nature, cluster munitions have been banned by more than 100 nations. The U.S., Ukraine, and Russia are not parties to this treaty known as the Convention on Cluster Munitions. So this Human Rights Watch report that came out, that just came out, again, right before we're finding this out, it said that Ukrainian cluster munition rocket attacks in the eastern city of Izium, which is in the Kharkiv uh uh, oblast to the east. So this is one of the cities that Russia controlled and then Ukraine retook. And while it was retaking it, they were using cluster bombs on the city. And according to Human Rights Watch, they killed at least eight civilians and wounded 15 more with cluster bombs. Human Rights Watch also said that Russia's use of cluster bombs in the war has killed many civilians. And Ukraine's use of cluster bombs, it goes back to 2014. Uh, you know, its use on areas where people live in the eastern territories there. In 2014, when the Donbass civil war broke out after the U.S.-backed ousting of Viktor Yanukovych, uh, Humans, Human Rights Watch had another report that year that said that Ukraine was using cluster bombs against populated areas of Donetsk. Uh, so Daryl Kimball, he's the executive director of the Arms Control Association, he issued a statement on Thursday warning the U.S. against sending the cluster bombs. He said that doing so would, quote, be escalatory, counterproductive, and only further increase the dangers to civilians caught in combat zones 
and those who will someday return to their cities, towns, and farms, end quote. And I mean, the big example of this is in Vietnam and Laos, where people, you know, just last year, somebody died in Vietnam because they found an unexploded U.S. bomb. Uh, it wasn't a cluster bomb, but a lot of it was cluster bombs that that has killed people since the end of the Vietnam War in 1975. Thousands of people, you know, have been killed since the end of the war. And I mean, it's just unbelievable that they're going to be sending these over there now. Um, you know, all this talk about, you know, human rights and everything that comes from the Biden administration just shows it's just a lot of uh, hot air and the depleted uranium as well. They're going to be sending, it looks like. So they're going to be poisoning their land and, um, you know, littering it with cluster bombs. All right, the next one here, Ukraine spy chief says the threat to the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant is subsiding. So Ukraine's military intelligence chief, uh, Kirillo Budinov, said Thursday that the threat to the Russian-controlled Zaporozhia nuclear power plant is subsiding. So Ukrainian officials have been claiming that Russia planted explosives at this nuclear plant, and they were warning that an attack was imminent. As I went over yesterday, the International Atomic Energy Agency has experts there, and they said that they saw no signs of explosives, although they did say they need to access more areas. But we've seen Ukrainian officials make these claims for weeks, no evidence. And now they're saying, oh, don't worry, the threat has subsided, which I think it's good to see them say that at least because then you had the Russians claiming that Ukraine was planning some sort of attack. So it's definitely concerning to see both of them claiming the other was planning to blow up this nuclear plant. You know, who knows what that could lead to. Uh, but Budinov said that the alleged Russian threat was decreasing, but he would not offer any details. He said, quote, sorry, I can't tell you what happened recently, but the fact is that the threat is decreasing. This means that at least we have all together with joint efforts somehow postponed a technogenic catastrophe, end quote. So what the Russian officials were saying, at least this was a Russian nuclear official. And I saw the Kremlin and other, you know, Russian government officials saying that Ukraine was planning some sort of sabotage. This one nuclear official was more specific. He was claiming that Ru Ukrainian forces plan to fire missiles at the Zaporozhye power plant stuffed with radioactive material on July 5th. He said that's when it was going to happen. It didn't happen. So that's good. So this plant has not blown up yet. And now the rhetoric and the accusations seem to be dying down. So that's good, at least. And this plant, we know, has been the scene of fighting throughout the war as Ukraine launched failed attacks on it to try to recapture the facility. The Russians took it pretty quickly in March 2022. And they the Ukrainians were, you know, shelling it and they were last fall really trying to attack it and they were blaming it on russia at the time so always important context to keep in mind that ukraine has previously blamed russia for attacks on the plant when it was clearly them and that just the fact that russia controls the plant you know i think is it's something when at the time when this shelling was happening you know if you read western media they didn't tell you that russia controlled the plant until you know a few paragraphs into these stories about ukraine accusing russia of shelling the plant um all right, the next one here, Lukashenko says that the Wagner chief is in Russia. So Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko said Thursday that Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin was now in Russia, raising questions about the deal between Moscow and the mercenary leader that ended his short-lived mutiny. 
So Lukashenko said, quote, as for Yevgeny Prigozhin, he is in St. Petersburg. Maybe he went to Moscow, but he is not on Belarusian soil, end quote. So Prigozhin initially traveled to Belarus after the two-day mutiny that took place on June 23rd and the 24th. It was about 24 hours. According to media reports, the understanding was that Prigozhin was going to live in Belarus in exile and that charges against him would be dropped. Wagner fighters were given the option of going to Belarus, signing contracts with the Russian MOD, or going home to their families. So now we have Lukashenko saying that he's actually back in Russia. And the Kremlin was asked about this. And Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that they're not tracking Prigozhin's whereabouts and that they're not interested in doing so. So it's interesting. And Lukashenko also discussed the possibility of Wagner fighters being deployed to Belarus. Some members of the mercenary force are expected to go there, but it's not clear how many or in what capacity. Lukashenko said that those decisions were up to Russian authorities. He said, quote, it will all depend on the decision of the company's management and Russian authorities. If they consider it necessary to deploy some troops from Wagner in Belarus, for some rest and training, I will certainly execute my order, end quote. And he also said that for now, Wagner fighters were at their permanent base camps where they withdrew to after the Battle of Bakhmut, which uh, that's either in Donetsk or Luhansk, in Russian-controlled Donetsk or Luhansk. I'm not sure which, uh, where exactly those camps are, but from what I understand, that's that's where they're based. Uh, so, and, it, you know, we had the NATO chief say the other day that they haven't seen Wagner fighters go to Belarus, so seems like a lot of them might be staying put and it's not clear how many are signing on with the Russian defense ministry. Uh, we'll see. this will all become clear. I think in the coming weeks. All right. The next one here, NBC claims that former U S officials held secret talks with Russians. So this was an interesting report that came out Thursday morning. It's from NBC news. They reported that a group of former senior U S officials has held talks with influential Russians including Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, in an effort to lay the groundwork for negotiations to end the war in Ukraine. Uh, however, later in the day, Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova called the report fake and said that it was disinformation spread by the West. So that was Russia's response. At the same time, I haven't seen um, you know, public statements really put out. That was on her Telegram channel that she said that. And then Gilbert Doctorow, who's an expert on Russia, who we publish, uh, he has a piece in the blog. He he speaks Russian and he watches Russian TV. And he was watching a Russian TV show that also said, called it fake news. And they said they had a source that said Lavrov did not hold the meeting. So it's not clear exactly uh, what the situation is. I think it's another thing. I think on Friday, you know, reporters are going to ask the Kremlin spokesman and everything. So we might get a clearer picture of what Russia's view is of this report. But anyway... So I'll tell you what the report said. The report said that a meeting with Lavrov took place when he was in New York for a UN Security Council meeting back in April. It said that issues discussed included potential diplomatic off-ramps and the fate of Russian-controlled territory. Throughout the war, there has been no known engagement between the Biden administration and the Russian government on these issues. The former U.S. officials who NBC claims met with Lavrov were Richard Haas, who's a former U.S. diplomat and outgoing president of the Council of, on Foreign Relations, and Charles Kupchan and Charles Graham, who are both fellows for the Council on Foreign Relations. 
Sources told NBC that the discussions have taken place with the knowledge of the Biden administration, but not at its direction. The former U.S. officials who met with the Lavrov briefed the White House National Security Council after the meeting. Other discussions have involved former U.S. officials and people who work at prominent think tanks and research institutions in Russia who are said to be close to Putin. It's not clear how often these talks are taking place. So I'm sure that there's some, you know, there's truth to some of this, that there are some sort of meetings between U.S. officials and Russian think tankers. That wouldn't really be a surprise. The Lavrov thing, I think, would be a big deal if it is confirmed. But for now, it seems like uh, it's not. Um, But it's not clear exactly how often these talks have taken place or, you know, if this is a big coordinated effort. So the Biden administration distanced itself from these reported talks because they don't want anything to do with diplomacy with Russia, and they don't want anybody to think that that they that they have anything to do with it. A State Department spokesperson said, "Quote: The Biden administration did not sanction those discussions, and as we've said repeatedly, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine." End quote. So that means we're not talking to Russia about Ukraine without Ukraine. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said that the White House was aware of unofficial talks between former U.S. officials and Russians. He said, quote, but I want to make clear that these discussions were not encouraged or engendered by us, and we were not supporting them in any active way, end quote. Of course. Um, So it's interesting is Haas and Kupchin, I'm, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, um, but they're the two officials who said that the report said met with Lavrov. They co-authored an article in Foreign Affairs back in April that was titled The West Needs a New Strategy in Ukraine. And they suggested in that report that the uh, Ukraine retake, you know, it should not be a U.S. goal for Ukraine to retake all of the Donbass and Crimea. They're saying that once the counteroffensive has reached its limits, then the U.S. should push for a ceasefire. So it's interesting that, you know, they have that view. Um, But at this point, you know, there's again, there's just no indication that the Biden administration, even if these former officials are interested, I think talks are good. Uh, You know, if this is happening, it's, it's good news. But still right now, there's just no sign that the Biden administration is interested um, I'm sure that they're talking about it, though, you know, behind the scenes about, you know, OK, what when it becomes clear that this counteroffensive isn't going anywhere, then what next? You know, what is our next move? Hopefully more people are saying we should, you know, think about diplomacy. Uh, but we'll see how this plays out. Again, we might see Russia comment more on fr- uh, comment more on this report on Friday. All right, the next one here, the U.S. says that Russia is harassing drones over Syria. So this article is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute, and there's more encounters between Russian and American aircraft over Syria. So the Pentagon released a video of a Russian fighter jet flying near an American drone above Syria. Moscow and Washington have previously accused each other of conducting unsafe aerial operations. So U.S. Central Command released footage Wednesday. Wednesday, showing the Russian Su-35 fighter and the U.S. MQ-9 Reaper drone. In a press release, the Department of Defense said that the Russian aircraft caused the drone to take evasive maneuvers. CENTCOM said, quote, one Russian pilot positioned their aircraft in front of an MQ-9 and engaged afterburner, dynamically increasing speed and air pressure, which reduced the MQ-9's operator's ability to safely operate the aircraft, end quote. So the video also showed the Su-35 releasing flares in the drone's flight path. The Pentagon said that the Russian planes 
engaged in a new level of unprofessional and unsafe action. Um, so last month, the Pentagon announced that it was sending more F-22s into the region in response to what they're calling Russia's unsafe actions. And then Russia, on the other hand, they're uh, throwing the accusations back at the U.S., saying that the U.S. has been operating unsafely. And an important point here is, you know, the U.S. Act, acts like it cares about, you know, international law and all that. But, you know, Russia is the military that has been invited into the country by Syria. And the U.S. is in the country against their will and occupying one third of their territory. Um, but, you know, all this is thrown out the window when uh, we're talking about Syria. You know, this these sovereignty and things like that only matter when it fits, uh, you know, the U.S. agenda. Uh, all right. So the next one here, the U.S. says that it conducted 37 operations against ISIS in Iraq and Syria. So U.S. Central Command said in a press release on Thursday that it was involved in 37 operations against ISIS in Iraq and Syria during the month of June. The command said that all of the operations were conducted with U.S. partners, the Kurdish-led SDF in Syria, and the Baghdad-based government in Iraq. CENTCOM, CENTCOM claimed that 13 ISIS operatives were killed. In Iraq, CENTCOM was involved in 30 operations where 12 alleged ISIS operatives were killed. Seven operations were conducted in Syria where one alleged ISIS operative was killed. So I always say alleged because, you know, this is the U.S. military we're talking about. We know that they are notorious for undercounting or lying about civilian casualties. And CENTCOM did not offer an assessment of potential harm to civilians in the operations. Um, and, you know, as an example of CENTCOM lying about civilian casualties, we had that May 3rd drone strike in northwest Syria that it's become clear that it killed a civilian, a guy that was hurting his sheep, a uh, farmer in the region. And after the drone strike, strike was launched and he was killed, CENTCOM immediately claimed that they killed a senior Al-Qaeda leader but it was later revealed that they didn't know, but they still put out that press release and they didn't even know who they killed. So, you know, we always have to keep that in mind. And really, you know, the point of highlighting this is just to remind people, you know, that the terror war is not over. These operations uh, that are, the U.S. is involved in, you know, keep going or ongoing. Um, and while the U.S. is involved in these operations in Syria, you know, the main thing, the purpose of their presence there is, is not about ISIS. ISIS doesn't hold much territory. They don't hold, you know, any territory, really. They're just, uh, op they operate in rural areas um, of Syria. And, you know, this is, they use this ISIS mission to justify staying in Syria, keeping it under those crippling economic sanctions and, you know, occupying their oil fields. You know, that's what the, their presence there is really all about and the presence in iraq supports they need the iraqi you know presence to support the syrian presence so one you know isn't going to go without the other uh all right the next one here the u.s plans a naval logistics hub in india so the u.s wants to turn india into a center where it can ma maintain and resupply naval ships and this is according to a report from nikkei asia on thursday so the U.S. has no military bases in India, but it has been working on increasing military ties with New Delhi in recent years. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi recently visited Washington and signed a slew of defense agreements with President Biden. 
So according to Nikkei, the U.S. will provide India with support to develop infrastructure to resupply, repair, and maintain ships and aircraft. Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Pat Ryder said that the aim is to make India a logistics hub for the United States and its partners in the region. The U.S. Navy is working on signing deals with Indian shipyards as part of the effort and the idea is to make it easier for U.S. warships and warplanes to operate in the region without having to travel too far for maintenance. The U.S. and India are both members of the Quad, a security grouping that also includes Australia and Japan. So in 2020, the Quad members started conducting joint military exercises and U.S. officials are calling for more general uh, military cooperation with India, specifically not just with the Quad, but joint air and naval patrols they want to start seeing. And if the U.S. can service its you know, Navy in India, we might see that more. And the U.S. has also increased cooperation with India over its disputed border with China in the Himalayas, known as the line of actual control. According to a report from U.S. News that was a pretty big deal that didn't get much attention, this report said that the U.S. provided India with unprecedented intelligence sharing that helped Indian troops in a clash with Chinese soldiers along this disputed border in December 2022, that resulted in dozens of injuries. So the Indian and Chinese troops deployed in this region, they don't have guns. The idea is to limit, you know, violence if, if they do end up in skirmishes. Um, in the summer of 2020 or in June 2020, might have been this uh, spring, they got into a clash at this border and 20 Indian troops died and four Chinese troops died. And that was just, you know, hand-to-hand combat. They have like clubs and things like that. I think a lot of them fell because it's very high altitude. So it was after that that India really started increasing ties with the U.S. And they signed this military deal in 2020, in October 2020. That lets the U.S. share more intelligence with them, satellite data. And because of that, they were able to do that in this December 2022 clash. So it's a pretty big deal. Um, And, you know, this is all part of the plan against China is increasing these ties with India. Um, But that is it for the news for today. Go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Ted Galen Carpenter. Western hostility toward peace mediation efforts by China and other powers. One from Trenton Hale, Biden administration backs Israeli crimes in Janine. Uh, We have one from Patrick Lawrence, the war we're finally allowed to see. That's over at Shearpost. We have one from Thomas Knapp, the U.S. war on Mexico would not win the war on drugs. I would have to agree with that. And we have one from Sam Frazier at Responsible Statecraft, Biden's disgraceful nomination of Elliot Abrams. Uh, Go check out our blog. We have that piece from Gilbert Doctorow that I was telling you about. Also, the Ben & Jerry's co-founder, Ben Cohen, was arrested in D.C. on Thursday at the Department of Justice. He was there demonstrating for Julian Assange. He refused to leave. You know, he asked to talk with somebody, and they arrested him. Um, So, yeah, go check that stuff out. Uh, But that's it. I hope everybody has a good weekend. Uh, You could always support us at antiwar.com slash donate. Like and subscribe to the show on YouTube or Odyssey Rumble, wherever you all the comments, feedback, and everything. Um, I'll talk to you after the weekend. Hope everyone has a good one. Thanks for listening.